0: On episode 547 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we meet Tony Riddle and discuss his book, Be More Human, how to transform your lifestyle for optimum health, happiness, and vitality. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 547. you decided you're ready to make a change? To reclaim your health and fitness, the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast is here for you. Each week we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40. I'm Alan Meisner. I'm an NSAM Certified Personal Trainer with specializations in corrective exercise, behavior change and fitness nutrition, a FAI Certified Functional Aging Specialist and an OTA Level 2 Online Trainer. I'm joined each week by our co-host, Rachel Everett. She is an NASM certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey. All right, let's go. Getting older is more than just losing your hair or your skin getting thin and crepey. We get weaker, we gain weight. Our energy goes, and with it, we feel ourselves go. It's the aging curve. You look in the mirror, or you see a reflection in a window, and ask, who is that old dumpy? And you look away. There goes the confidence. Aches and pains seem to pop up like dandelions in your yard. If having an act of retirement was part of the plan, well, what if I told you that you make this decision each and every day? you decide whether you're going down a steeper aging curve or you're slowing it. I think you know that. I think you try, are trying, but there's just something missing. With over six and a half years of training people over 40, people just like you, I've learned that there are a few key things that trip us up. And I've made sure to address all of them in my BFFT program. The Be Fit for Task program BFFT for short is a six week deep dive that addresses mindset, nutrition, fitness, and self care in a way that meets you where you are and takes you forward. We find the tactics and strategies that will work for you, giving you the tools you need. However, it's not good enough to know what to do. You have to do it and keep doing it. Consistency wins. And through BFFT, you have the accountability and support to get you there. Learn more at 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT. Change is hard when you don't have the tools and accountability. BFFT will give you both, and you'll have me with you each and every step of the way. 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT. Not deciding is deciding. You can stay on your current path, or you can do something different. Check out 40plusfitness.com forward slash BFFT now. You owe it to yourself to at least learn more about the Be Fit for Task program. I hope you will. Hey, Raz. How are things going? Good, Alan. How are you today? I'm I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. good. I um, recently finished my coursework for the Precision Nutrition Level 1. Mm-hmm. And uh, waiting for my certificate to come in, uh, I, I set it up. well, I set it up on monthly payments. so it's kind of one of those things where because it it's not cheap, uh, <laughs> but they offered they offered monthly payments. I'm like, okay, I'll mm-hmm. do monthly payments. And you know, considering how long it usually takes people to get through that course, you know they said, okay, expect it to take three or four months, and you have to get about that many payments in before they'll even let you say that you're you're certified. Uh, So I think I have to wait until, uh, the end of this month that, you know, it's already July. Um, (laughs) I have to wait Mm -hmm. till the end of this month and I make a payment on the 29th. Uh, and so a couple of weeks from now, uh, when this goes live, I'll get that payment in and they should send me my certificate and then I'll be precision nutrition level one certified.
1: Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. What did you think about the class? Did you learn anything interesting or anything?
0: I I did. I did. You know, it's uh, for a lot of people when they're thinking about this, you know, they think about, oh, I don't want to log everything I eat. And, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so hard to track this or, oh, they want me to do away with this or do away with that. And um, precision nutrition is a lot more holistic, um, you know, things I've said. So it kind of fits my my model of, of thought is Ooh. one eat whole food.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, right.
0: Who to thunk it? eat whole food. Uh, mm-hmm. and then just take some time to start understanding portion sizes.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good one.
0: And yep. and then, and then, you know, it's sleep and and making sure that you're staying hydrated. And those are the kind of the four core principles mm-hmm. sure. of it. Um, and guess what you don't have to do when you understand. Portion sizes, you're getting adequate sleep, you're mm-hmm. staying hydrated, and you're eating real food, mm-hmm. you don't have to track calories. You don't have to really worry about tracking macros. Uh, cool. because guess what? You can't overeat whole food. Oh, cool. Think about it. <laughs> yeah. If, if I said, okay, here, here's what you you got chicken or beef or fish mm-hmm. as a protein. Mm-hmm. And maybe you know, maybe you want to do vegan or vegetarian. It's like so mm-hmm. you get your protein together. And you get your vegetables and fruits together and then mm-hmm. try to overeat it.
1: Oh gosh. Try. Yeah.
0: Just just try to overeat meat. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> you know, so so I'll tell you, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to cut a little bit more weight to get ready for the tough mutter, um, which is gonna be mm-hmm. in another month and a half from when this goes live. And so I've started like really trying to get myself into a, a ketosis and pushing through on that. And mm-hmm. you know, it, what right now I'm going through something where any Anything I eat that has carbs in it pops me down Mm -hmm. and I'm like, so I'm right on that line. It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. right over the line or right under the line. And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't be too terribly troubled about it other than, you know, I'm not cutting body fat right now because I Mm -hmm. drop out of ketosis when I eat any carbs at all. So I'm actually, at least for the last 48 hours, full carnivore. Wow. Wow. And and I can tell you, it's like, so I had steak for breakfast. I had eggs for lunch. Well, I say breakfast. Mm. I ate it. I ate it at like noon, but I had my breakfast at noon. It was steak. (laughs) Uh, I had, I had Mm -hmm. eggs, eggs for lunch, which was, I had about three 30. And then for Mm -hmm. dinner at about six, I had another steak. Um, so I'm Mm. talking about eating, I'm talking about eating maybe about a pound of steak. So a big 16 ounce steak. And then three eggs oh, was what I had for lunch. So kind of a light lunch and then, <laughs> and then another <laughs> steak. So I yeah. ate about another pound of steak for, for dinner and I um, couldn't eat anymore. You know, if, if someone no said, way. Oh, I got some, I got some leftover steak here. I'm like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to go to waste. So I'll, I'll wrap it up and save it for tomorrow. I could not have eaten more oh, than I ate. And if I added up the calories, I'm pretty sure I was really low on calories. I mean, cause oh. a, a pound of steak, I don't know, but, uh, you know, two pounds of steak and three eggs, you guys can look it up and kind of figure out how many calories I had that day. But that's all I ate. And I stayed satiated and full all day long. Oh, I would imagine that
1: sounds yeah. filling. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Whereas I could eat a whole loaf of bread mm. with, without even batting an eye, you know, like literally buy a My whole gosh. loaf of French bread and just sit there and eat it. Um, and then I'd, I'd be hungry 10 minutes later, you know, or two hours later, I'd be starving. So, you know, you look at the nutritional density of your food and that's really kind of where the fundamental difference comes in. Whole food is nutritionally dense Mm -hmm. and you get full before that. Whereas a lot of other foods that are processed or even somewhat slightly mildly processed, they're just more calorie dense Mm -hmm. and that's where the weight gain comes from
1: they're just not satiating. They yeah. just don't
0: fill you up. So that's yeah. what this is. That's the kind of some of the core principles between precision nutrition. And there's a huge component of behavioral change. So there's a, a lot wow. of what they're talking about is how we, how we build habits, how we change mm-hmm. behaviors. And so that's the, that's kind of the secret sauce to the, the precision nutrition process is it's not just telling you what to eat, um, mm-hmm. or not eat, It's basically saying beyond that, we have to build these habits. We have to build these things and they don't just happen. You don't Mm -hmm. just decide. So there's a big behavioral component of, of making sure that happens. And, uh, then uh, within it is like, they break it down as like, sometimes you're dealing with, you know, elite athletes that want to really hit a physique target or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it gets very specific into some of the things that you would deal with, with someone who needs to lose a lot of weight. Versus someone who's really just trying to cut like another three pounds without losing any body, you know, body Mm -hmm. fat, muscle mass, Mass, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of that in there too, you know, that's kind of what I would say outside of my core demo. Um, Most of us are not trying to win physique contests. Um, (laughs) But that said, it's it's a really good certification. So anyone that is certified out there, uh, I would look at precision nutrition as a way of understanding the nutrition aspects of personal training, and then being able to Mm -hmm. offer that as a more holistic service.
1: That sounds awesome.
0: Sounds like a great class. So what's up there?
1: Good. Uh, You know... Summertime brings some really fun stuff. Right now we've got two massive mulberry trees on our property that are dropping mulberries like crazy. It's it's ridiculous. They're all over the ground and my dogs love it. <laughs> <laughs> they get a free snack every time they go outside, but it also brings in other animals and I just saw a red fox the other day, so Little fox family living somewhere in our um, wooded subdivision is coming to snack on the mulberries that are on our property, and it's it's been a real treat. So
0: now the thing about foxes, and this is you know we see these cute, cuddly little pictures of foxes, you know, and, and we see Mm -hmm. the pictures and we see the cartoons and they, they seem like they're just this lovable little animals, they're adorable, Uh, they're adorable, (laughs) but some of them are like, really like not adorable. Like, so you could get a good fox or a bad fox and, but they're dangerous. They're wild animals and they could go after your dog. They could, you know, they could go after you. Uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, you gotta, you gotta be, uh, mind your P's and Q's when you go we out do. there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I keep an eye on my dogs when I do let them out. I, and I'm always looking first. Before um, I let them out, just to make sure there's nobody in our yard. Fox. We've had deer run through. We've had groundhogs coming through as well. <laughs> so we've got a, a whole fun uh, menagerie of uh, wildlife in our property. But
0: it's like Noah's Ark.
1: It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah, but it is always fun. It's fun to oh, see. Good, so
0: Good. Mm-hmm, All right. Yeah. Well, are you ready to talk to Tony Riddle? Sure. Our guest today is a natural lifestyle coach, author, and record-breaking barefoot endurance athlete. One day, standing in his gym, his dream, he watched people training under fluorescent lights, and he came to an epiphany. This was not true fitness. He made a change to find the best way to train to be more human. With no further ado, here is Tony Riddle. Tony, welcome to 40 Plus Fitness. Thanks, Evan. Great to be here, man. Thanks for the invite. Now, your your book is called Be More Human, which I love, (laughs) How to Transform Your Lifestyle for Optimum Health, Happiness, and Vitality. And I think one of the reasons that this title, your title, and this book resonated so much with me is it's a lot of what I've done to improve my own health and fitness has included a lot of the things that are in this book, including we moved to... uh, a small island, Caribbean island, uh, off the coast of Panama. And so while I do live in a town, I'm very, very close to the jungle and I'm closer to nature and everything than I've ever been in my whole adult life. Wow. And, and so, you know, it's it's uh, like I can literally go out and be in places and not see a person walking for over an hour. And it's it's just That's kind of a sp- dream. It is, it's, it's special, it's special, I, I, I know. Um, but a lot of this in the book, doesn't require you to travel thousands of miles and move into the jungle uh, to experience a lot of the benefits uh, that I get being here, uh, and so I want to talk a lot about this, um, what's in the book here, because I think this is a, this is a really special way to get healthier, connect with the earth, and and really, and you say the term be more human, but I'm like, be who you're supposed to be you know be the person you were brought here to be
2: yeah you're human what the universe uniquely assigned you to be get into the understanding of that what your own human potential is or purpose we could even call that you know and i think we get so distracted from that in our everyday environments because we're simply not getting our needs met within those environments and that's largely what the book is about it's not about demonising the urban environment or the lifestyles in the city or the city itself, it's trying to dismantle and deconstruct those ways of living that aren't serving us, and then reconnect into ways of living that enable us to thrive in any environment. That's the point to become the the connected, empowered being that we entered it with. You know, we're all innately wild, connected, empowered beings. It's what we land with. And, over time, unfortunately, we get pulled off the path but it's really it's yeah for me it's about every every day should still be a get our needs met, our most fundamental needs that then enable us to thrive and really tune into well what's this what's this human's potential here? How do I be more human you know and and the way I like the way
0: you put it in the book because uh it really puts it in a really good context is that we're we're effectively in a we, we create our own human zoo. And, and then you introduced the term rewilding, which you say a lot of people are, are going to initially kind of have a, a, a cringe moment when they think about, you know, uh, going back to the Stone Age living in caves or maybe, maybe tents, you know, uh, with, with you know, stone tools. Uh, can you go a little bit more into what this rewilding, getting out of our human zoo is all about and, and why it's so important?
2: Yeah, I, I, when I first started this kind of path, there was this language of zoo human versus wild human. And first of all, it's a bit of an insult to call someone a zoo human. And at the same breath, we can't really connect to being what a wild human is. And even indigenous cultures they don't want to be perceived as being wild, right? It's like, uh, but again, looking at the indigenous template of what it is to be, there's some incredible kind of moments where I've had these deep insights in nature, because it's taken me to unplug myself from the urban environment to really tune in to how sophisticated it all is, right? And, you know, if you look at indigenous cultures, how incredibly wise and understanding those cultures are to that landscape of which they're custodians, really. We could look at the, um, what is it, the study I, I've brought up in there is like 4 to 5% of the world's population is indigenous and yet look after 80% of the world's biodiversity. So then it's like, well, what is it that we're doing then if that's four or 5%? And, and so firstly, there's the biodiversity, there's the question of that, what is it that we're doing within the environment? Is it because we're so separate from it? So I guess that's where I'd go with the wild understanding of it, You know, that we are part of nature, not separate of it. it we're interconnected in that sense. And then the zoo human in my in my mind is the fact that we've become disconnected and unplugged from it and that we see ourselves separate. So there's the ego versus eco conversation. So a lot of the work for me is that disconnecting from an ego system and reconnecting to an ecosystem. Again, not by demonizing the urban environment or the environments of which we choose to live in. It's the habits perhaps that are in those environments. Um, so, we could be looking at movement, perhaps. What does movement look like in nature? Okay, so that would be a, 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 a wild or organic way of moving versus what does it look like in the human zoo? What does it look like in our, our everyday urban setting? So, we could even put movement down to let's look at one study of the Hadza, for instance, to give us an example of cultures that have been living the same way for tens of thousands of years. Um, the Hadza are just as sedentary as we are as in they sit for 10 and a half hours a day yeah as in we sit for 10 and a half hours a day but there's something very different well we have a chair whereas they're sitting they're sitting practices of floor sitting therefore there's multiple different rest positions we can be choosing on the ground which ultimately will lead to one primary position which is a squat and that squat position it enables me to recognize the same body weight on my feet in the base of support of my feet to which i would stand so squatting is the same weight same as the feet that i load for when i'm standing but it's a rest position and we see squatting as kind of a, an exercise protocol or strength conditioning protocol but ultimately beneath it there's a rest position that we can um, communicate be around a fire eat um, poop give birth in right and if we then look at the chair, perhaps, in that conversation, or the sofa, where we may spend 10 and a half hours of our day committed to, um, in a way, it compromises or is the saboteur of the way that we stand. So Suddenly, we find ourselves locked in the hips or stagnation occurring in the hips. The, then the pelvis and the lumbar become incredibly unstable because the hip joints aren't mobile enough. so the, core element the core we love talking about becomes unstable the mid-back becomes compromised Um, our chest starts to collapse our head position starts to shoot forward and all those postural changes aren't conducive with standing you know and we spend a large portion of our day in that position so that could just be well that could be a zoo posture versus a wild posture and in terms of wild i would say what is it what is it to be this wild connected empowered being well, it could just be just simply the way we move through a landscape or interact with it. How upright we are, how open we are, is our posture connected and are our joints working how they should be? Are our feet connected how they should be? Are they nourishing the behaviors of the ankle, the knee, the hip, stabilizing the lower back? Um, we could then put sleep in that box because we all love the topic of sleep, Right. And there's so many studies in what would be the human zoo or the human laboratory even, because most of those studies are in the laboratory, um, which help us understand, well, we need eight hours sleep a day. You know, we must get eight hours sleep a day. And to the point, people are stressed about getting eight hours sleep a day because they've heard the news that if you don't receive eight hours sleep, then you have a sleep debt, or you'll have a number of symptoms based on the fact you haven't accumulated your eight hours and they are diabetes, obesity, inflammation. And yet, when you look at these indigenous cultures, there's a great study in the book again. Um, Professor Siegel from the University in California, he, he looks at three different geographic locations of three independent tribes. So different geographic locations, independent tribes. The Hadza are in there again. Um, and they all have the same time asleep it's like 5.7 to 7.1 hours no eight hours at all but no one is asleep for eight hours or set 5.7 to 7.1 hours in a solid state it's this sleep-wake cycle and if you think if you strip it back and think well um that makes sense right because in nature nature can be quite hostile if it's been the same sleep or the same environment they've been inhabiting for tens of thousands of years then that might have been hostile if they were all asleep for eight years, eight, eight, eight hours, sorry, in that time, <laughs> um, would we be here today? Would they? Would those cultures be here today in those hostile environments if they went to the land of Nod for eight, eight, eight hours? So um, in that sleep-wake cycle, what they're doing is they're waking, they're tending to fire because you have to have a fire. They're fixing tools. Um, they're even known to smoke, um, party, whatever it is. But when they break away from the study and they look at the Hadza, for instance, and they assess for 220 hours, they study them, 33 members of that one tribe, 220 hours, they're only ever asleep for 18 minutes together. They're all doing this, you know, all different sleep-wake cycles. Um, So where is the obesity, the the chronic inflammation, the obesity, it's not there. They're in incredible shape, you know? And if some of the studies, when you look at them, because we have this idea about longevity that they're only living until their 40s, some of these tribes know they can live beyond 70. You know, it's, that's not the case when we look at it. So it's it's quite an interesting model to unpack just looking at, well, how does it look in nature and how does it look in the environments of which we're inhabiting? And then what is it that's different? So, what is different in that sleep habitat, And You know, it's like um, ah, lighting, right? There's no ding, turn the light on to create sunrise at sunset. So we know then that that through the studies around melatonin and, and light pollution and blue light spectrums, they've become the saboteur of melatonin, which is this incredible hormone that we only really associate with sleep, but it has antioxidant properties, anti-inflammatory. Um, it's also the main regulatory system of our digestive system around glenine, lept, ghrelin and leptin which then regulate whether I've had too much food, whether I need to eat, right? And then insulin, right? So there's this link to pancreas and the insulin. So then we have, okay, inflammation, diabetes, and obesity all in a conversation around melatonin and lighting all of a sudden. So is it the eight hours sleep or is it the environment of which we're choosing to sleep? So then my question is, well, how do we rewild that environment? And that's this context of rewilding a zoo or zoo environment. As simple as the bedroom, we could look at that one environment if we're looking to spend eight hours in it. So what can we do? We could change the lighting. You can now bring in circadian lighting, which offers the same um, biological darkness, which is like starlight, moonlight, and firelight. So it brings in amber tones. um, And anything they suggest between 60 and 600 lux will inhibit a blue spectrum light, sorry, will inhibit... Um, melatonin then what else is different the temperature there's also studies that suggest that if the temperature can also be a saboteur of melatonin so it's about getting the temperature down in the evening so if you think about again about being in an outdoor environment if you've ever camped you know that once the sun goes down it gets cooler at night so we know this cooling down of temperature too and then there's something else which is materials that perhaps we're breathing in and out in that environment so in nature again it's an organic experience so we're only ever really inhaling or let's call it consuming through everything our ears our nose our senses our taste everything organic so how do we make that expression more organic and it's probably one of the one of the points in the book everything else is free really that the points i put in the book but this is one where you stuff out of that bedroom environment to replace it with more organic material now that might be the bedding or things like breathing we can change breathing mechanics so we now know that through nasal breathing there's a change of relationship between parasympathetic and sympathetic and then the information that we receive right so we all have one of these now um, that's quite a bright mobile phone. Be, yeah, mobile phone. <laughs> yeah and, and there's some fantastic studies around just fields of vision so that's quite bright. So that alone, the light will inhibit melatonin. It's a suppressor of that. We recognize that now, right? The saboteur of that. But also the fact that the visual state is so concentrated, and that's associated with more sympathetic, which is like fight and flight, whereas an open visual field is more associated with parasympathetic. So you have one condition where we're staring at a blue light, which will suppress melatonin. The second one, we end up with a really hypervisual state, which is sympathetic fight and flight before sleep. The next one is then dopamine, because we're typing and swiping, which again, isn't conducive with sleep. And studies suggest that up to 400% melatonin from just typing and swiping. And then it can just be the information we're receiving. So is the information upregulating? Am I perhaps the difference between the fire and the indigenous tribes around the fire is perhaps romance, comedy, um, imparting wisdom, you know? Whereas this can be quite toxic, and we've even normalized social, uh, emotional bullying over, the, over social media, right? It's okay to drop this comment in that's incredibly abusive to one person that they might receive before sleep. Or it could be a movie you're watching, which is incredibly violent. That would be the equivalent of being around the fire with your tribe in this really down regulated state and being invaded or something, right? Or... In a moment, some a predator comes in. So then you switch to what would be fight and flight, right? That would be a reaction to it. But we we have that in our possession the whole time. So it's when you see it like that and you understand it that it's much easier to think, oh, okay, I, I get it now. It's not really about the the length of sleep. The length of sleep is almost symptom relief. You know, it's this. It's a symptom. What is it? What's the cause? It could even be the bedroom of which you're sleeping in. Could be the cause of, you know, the the very conditions that are leading you to suppress melatonin are leading to inflammatory disease, diabetes, and obesity. You know, this is just sim- simple factors like that, you know, now, and then we can the, address it with symptom relief or we can look at the yeah. cause and the cause we've change the environment. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that's fascinating about you is
0: you're an endurance runner and yeah. do your runs barefooted. And, um, I can tell you, uh, the other day it was raining and I had wore uh, cause I was planning to meet my wife out and I had wore my leather uh, boat shoes, brand new boat leather boat shoes. And I didn't have an umbrella. And I was like, okay, I, I can't, I can't walk home in these, I'm going to have to walk yeah. home barefoot. And so I put them in a plastic bag and I, I put them in another bag and then I started walking home barefoot and, you know, one stepping in a puddle when you can't see the bottom is a little, little kind of scary. But sharp rocks—I seem to be able to find every single sharp rock uh, between <laughs> two points. How, do, how does someone get into barefoot running and do it in a way where they're not hurting themselves? Like I said, I think you can condition your foot, but uh, and obviously it'll get stronger. I know that by because I spend a lot of time walking around barefoot. But uh, it just to me, running barefoot is is, is a little
2: scary. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a mind aspect to it, right, as well as obviously the physiological. But there's also a technique. Right? I, mean, I think we sometimes neglect the technique. But there's a study in the book from University of Liverpool, which is Chris Dort, and they looked at the strength side of it, so the physiological changes that can occur by people returning just back to barefoot footwear, like Vivo Barefoot, for instance. In this particular study, it was Vivo Barefoot. And um, within six months, they'd improved 60% foot strength and 40% balance just by returning that. So if we think of that yeah. being the foundation of your superstructure. So the first phase could be, well, you could change to more minimal footwear. That's one step, because then you're still getting the um, shape of the foot because we ultimately you want to look at, well, what's the shape of a foot versus the shoes that I'm wearing. So if you were to take a piece of paper, draw around your foot on the paper, and you'd find the toe area, like the foot, this area is much, excuse my dirty feet there, is wide, and the heel is much more narrow, right? Yeah. Whereas if you then grab your footwear and you draw around it, you might find that the toe box is actually much more narrow. It's aesthetic. So it's more aesthetically pleasing, but it's again the saboteur to how that foot is designed and to move and nourish the rest of your posture and the way that we move above it. So if the, Shape of the foot is compromised. There's 26 bones, 33 articulations, joint actions, um, like 100 muscle tendon ligaments, you know, 29 muscles, the, and then it's made up of tendon ligaments. And then there's 200,000 receptors, like so the receptors, like the equivalent of your hands that reside in a foot. I mean, it's phenomenal engineering. But that then feeds and nourishes how your joints and behaviors are above it. To make you more efficient and minimize the risk of injury but let's say alan decides oh i'm going to take my shoes off i'm going to walk um, over a hard surface which has hard stones on it if i was to ask you to jump up and down um barefoot on a really hard surface what gives alan is it you or is it the hard surface well i'm gonna have to because it's, it's not going anywhere to, right? <laughs> not going anywhere Or we'd be hitting hard on hard. And one of those surfaces will have to break, right? So what happens is that if you were to jump up and down on a compliant, really soft surface, we can become more stiff right, and more rigid because the surface is doing this. So come 1969, it was normalized all of a sudden to wear more rubber. And then we have more rubber, but we also have a narrow toe box. So we create a narrow shape for the toes to go into. Then we put rubber underneath it with a heel which raises it and pushes the foot into the footbed even more. So we create a stiff rigid foot which becomes narrow in the toe box. And the whole point of that wide super wide foot is not just the loading points, leverage and pivoting, there's specific actions that have to occur in the foot that are based on leverage and balance you know, and this ability to even grip with the foot. When the foot becomes incredibly stiff and rigid in that shape, um, you're then, when you try and return back to walking over a stony path, you're then going back to that hitting hard on hard and stiff on stiff. And it can feel like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, until um, you would have to learn how to break the foot up. So, again, going back into one way is to return back to minimalist barefoot footwear. So you can start to allow the foot to open up. It has minimal, but min, there's a minimum layer between you and the earth. Um, it's zero drop, um, your feet, you'll feel stuff underneath you, but you won't be getting so much of that ooh, ah, ooh, ah, which creates more tension, the more of that response, the more rigid and tense you get adding to more hard on hard expression. Um, and the other thing what I've put some practices in the book is to rewild the feet, which are practices like toga, we call it, it's like yoga for your feet. And that's then about opening the feet up and getting more expression into them and soft ultimately softening them so they can become the compliance over the stiff surfaces and then eventually what happens the more more familiar you you normalize it and what you find is that you become more sensory um, aware more sensitive and i don't mean sensitive in the ah, ah, ah. i mean sensitive like really learn your that you'll learn how to become again soft when you need to be stiff when you need to be we have the most sophisticated suspension systems within us, right? That's the point. And that's why those 26 bones, 33 articulations, um, 200,000 receptors are there, and over 100 muscles, tendons, ligaments, well, 29 muscles and the rest tendon, ligaments that make that 100 up. That's why it's there. But it's there also because it feeds and nourishes all the other mechanics above it. So that's where that's where I'd go with feet, but then you then have, well, the chair. So the chair will then the seat to sitting for 10 and a half hours then yeah. compromises the posture above it. So it's like a two-pronged thing. Running for me is not just barefoot running, it isn't just about feet. It's about getting the appropriate posture and becoming much more upright and aware of that posture. And the whole point there is that our head should be up above, like we lead with the heart. The chest is the lead segment, not the head. The moment the head goes forward from typing, swiping, and yeah, couching and slouching, I call it, what would happen is when you're running, so that if your head's far forward of you, you have to have your foot further out in front of you. Otherwise, you'd simply fall over. You imagine you're upright like this and we're running along. The moment the head drifts forward, you'd have to put your foot further out. Otherwise, you'll fall over. So the head would get to a point, your tipping point. But if we can become much more upright, you can get to the point where your feet are pretty much landing underneath you. And it means there's a lot less contact time. So you just catch the ground beneath you. And the idea is that leading from your heart and keeping your head up, we're literally just falling in this direction. And you just keep pulling your feet softly from underneath you. And pulling is a great term. I I understand that from a genius called Nicholas Romanoff, who developed the Pose Method. Um, and this idea that we think we have to push when we run and ultimately if you just keep doing this you just pull your feet from the ground and the idea is by pulling you're not driving your feet down or pushing you're trying to pick them up and i would pick them up with a with a sensitivity again like this softening and you don't need to worry about putting them down it will just happen naturally just pick up so if you keep your head up your chest up lead with the heart Nasal breathing also helps because, again, we have the study suggests that there's through nitric oxide that we inhale through the nose. It's stimulated will um, benefit vasodilation and bronchial dilation, therefore become more efficient with our lungs of breathing and we can lower our heart rate and our blood pressure just by nasal breathing. There's also 42 percent less vapor loss by nasal breathing, which is like mind blowing, especially for me, for an endurance athlete. Um, but it keeps us in that calm state again so i think with breathing we can be relaxed with the right posture we can deal with the forces appropriately we're not creating longer levers or loading areas of the feet we're not designed to load and just by either wearing minimal footwear or allowing the feet to understand what's beneath them Um, again it helps feed our movement brain to make the right calculations on what muscles tendons and actions should be applied for that one locomotive pattern. And I say that one because walking is, is the same. It's like walking with an, with an upright posture, down-regulated through breath, um, less striding, actually trying to keep your feet underneath you, but thinking about rolling through the feet and becoming visually aware of the environment as well, You know, because the moment we bring the head down, that head starts to chase and we create longer levers. Otherwise, again, we'd be falling over. And the less contact time, the more efficient again because it requires less muscle action you're on the ground for less time basically so there's a lot there to unpack i would say yeah. now the, cool, the thing yeah. posture relaxation yeah. and the timings and the rhythms of that you know
0: and and the key takeaways i get from this again being over 40 uh, actually over 50 now is is balance because falls become a big deal particularly as we get over 60 so anything you can do to improve your balance, which this will do, is good. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the being more efficient means you're going to be capable of going faster and doing more work. So when you're out training, you're going to get more done, and you're going to improve. You're going to see better improvements because your efficiency and your capacity to do more because your heart rate isn't racing as high because you're not in that fight or flight state. So there's a lot of lot to unpack there that makes this uh, really interesting. Now the other thing, and, and people won't know this, listening to a podcast, but you're you're sitting on the floor, and yeah. so sitting sitting on the floor, you know, it's one of the things. If you hand you hand a kid a book or a toy, immediately they're going to run over and they're going to sit on the floor, and then somewhere along their lives, probably around grade school age, we start beating that out of them, and then eventually they're going to be on couches and chairs just like the rest of us. I found that sitting on the floor when you're with a kid. Is it it changes the whole relationship with that child, Mm. and I've I built relationships with my granddaughter. Initially, she was terrified of me, and I built a relationship by walking over and sitting on the floor and starting a SpongeBob cartoon on my computer. And she came over and sat next to me, and we watched Sponge SpongeBob for about an hour. And my ability to be able to sit on the floor for that amount of time. I shifted, I moved, uh, I didn't, you know, you don't, can't, you can't really just sit. You gotta, you got different postures you have to do because your body's just naturally going to tell you to do that, which is actually part of the value. Can you, you know, in there you had actually like, I think six different ways of sitting, uh, that you want to shift between. And I think actually, in my opinion, that a lot of those just naturally happen, but can you talk about sitting and having a, a floor sitting and having a floor sitting practice?
2: Yeah, we've been a ground living, floor sitting family for, I think, since Lola and Millie, they're our eldest. So they're 13 and, well, 12 to about turn 13 and 10. So um, 10, I'd say, yeah, it must be, it's about around about nine years, I guess, now, eight or nine years. I used to have a Pilates studio and big practice, like six practitioners. And people would rock up at the studio, they'd take their, compromising narrow toe box compliance shoes off put them in the rack and they would have no doubt been driving to the pilates studio sitting would then come in and jump on the reformers and the cadillacs and try and dismantle all the harm that was being caused the symptom relief from the environment the cause which was the footwear and the chair because they'd been sitting for 10 and half hours so i had this kind of eureka moments would pop off you know it's like wow okay this is like. So what does that look like again? And I, It came really through the barefoot running and understanding that, well, there's a natural running posture. Where do we see that? Well, Indigenous cultures again, natural running posture. It can be seen there. And again, these incredible tribes, running tribes, are running the same. They all look the same when they're running and have the same posture. And and so what's different? Again, Ah, oh, ground, there, there, there's no footwear. and There's no chair <laughs> involved. That's how they've managed to maintain the same posture. So what do the sitting postures look like? Well, it works out. You can look. You can strip it back. And you may see this, as you're, you've alluded to, with kids. You see them sitting on the ground. You'll see them transition from one shape to another. And those rest positions that are in the book, there's six different series. It's a series of each. So there's a squatting series, a side-sitting series, a long-sitting series, and so on, a kneeling series. Each one of those rest positions is like a prerequisite of, or, or will complement the way we stand, because that's ultimately what we used as a baby to toddler to young adult to stand up, right? And then what happened is at some stage, a chair was pushed underneath us. And then we start to sit in a chair for longer periods of time in a classroom environment with a hierarchical system of a teacher at the front. And we're told to sit still and be quiet. And we may have had an hour then to go out and play. And then that hour became lunch break and then play became PE, right? physical education which then involves stretching and doing all this stuff but before the chair kids you don't see any child any toddlers stretching they're just incredibly fluid in this ability to move on the ground and what we've noticed through ground sitting and being a floor sitting family is, is our, our kids that's how they've remained right we unschool as well there's no school in that conversation hmm. so the only time we're sitting it's unavoidable it could be in a car or a plane or a train or occasional cinema right Um, But other than that, it's ground sitting and their their postures are incredible, right? Their framework's incredible. Their athleticism has remained incredible. Um, They haven't had to relearn how to, once they stand up from a chair. So again, I I think it's understanding that there's beneath our upright, wild, empowered posture, there are these sitting postures and those sitting postures help help nourish um, that upright posture. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh, I love that. Chairs. I love that
0: concept of of a sitting family, uh, and and the reason is that I, I think back to how much money I have spent on couches and chairs over the course of my life. <laughs> uh, uh,
2: right, and we 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 work. On, we use um we use bolsters and stuff like that because you still want to create like a dining experience. So our dining room table is a low table, and we have ground sitting like little bolsters, like yoga yoga cushions and stuff like that on the ground, so if people come, they still have a as some experience, as a dining experience. Yeah. Um, now that's not going to work for everyone. So my advice is always that you know look at the everyday environment. Can I spend less time on the couch? Can I set a timer, and maybe kneel or squat? And you do get signals. And for some, at the beginning, it will be uncomfortable. But it's playing with the edges of that discomfort until some of those postures become a little more comfortable. They won't become so comfortable that you'll spend 10 and a half hours like you could in a chair, because nature's way is you'll get signals to tell you to move. And the beauty of that is there's a chemical metabolic cost for movement. You know, taking your everyday work, if you work from home, put your laptop down, like I'm on this call, I'm on the ground, I've been side sitting and I've been sitting cross-legged, I've been kneeling and I've been squatting already, all on a call. And we're like 40 or 40 minutes in. I just have, whilst having a conversation, 40 minutes of mobility and strength work that ultimately is going to help me remain mobile in my hips and strong in my core, keep my head and chest upright, which then has an overlap into the way that I stand, I walk, and I run. As a 47-year-old endurance athlete, is that important? 100%. And we're all endurance athletes. That's the point, you know? underneath it we are right that's that's where we're at and it's just unfortunately some of the habits within habitats aren't enabling that and if you want to become again more efficient minimize the risk of injury then get on the ground and just get back into understanding how those behaviors are on the ground and how that will then feed into how your posture will thrive and there's some there's a guy Yehudi in my book I mentioned him he's like um 80 two now and he first come wanting to learn how to walk and he had this stooped posture from working and um, collapsed in the chest and stiff in the hips and stiff in the ankles and over time went through toga rewilding feet rewilding footwear vivo barefoot got him on the ground ground sitting and and then later on in time, the reason that it turned out he wanted to learn how to walk was because he wanted to climb Everest to base camp, Everest base camp with his wife for his 50th anniversary. But his commute now looks like this right? he walks to the tube in barefoot footwear. The tube is our underground train, right? He then gets on the underground, and mostly people will go, um, Do you want a seat? Because he's like 80, right? And he went, no, no, I'm okay. And so here he either hang off the bars above, so he hang onto the rails above while the train is moving. So he gets grip strength in, it opens his chest up, enables his whole respiratory system by enabling that upper posture through hanging. And then when the train stops, he either squat whilst people get on. When the train goes again, the doors close, he surf. So he's now balancing whilst not holding onto anything and surfing the train. And That just, again, it proves that it's never too late even, Alan, you know, because sometimes we look at this, we go, oh, no, I'm I'm past that. I'm never going to be able to sit back on the ground again. Here we are a dude in his, like, 80s. That's what he's doing, and that's his practice. And he also works from home, and he has a standing desk, and he also has a sitting desk, but he also has a lot of his practice on the ground that will help dismantle and deconstruct some of the poor qualities that come from sitting in a chair but also enhance the way that he stands at his standing desk and will improve the posture of which he chooses to stand because standing t- desks get a lot of praise. But if I'm not posturally aware and I still have um, inefficiencies in movement within the ankle and the hip and I'm not flexible or upright in the mid back, which comes through sitting in a chair, then that's just as detrimental to stand with poor posture as it is sitting with it. You know? yeah. So that's Yeah.
0: Now, one of the other areas of, of movement that uh, I want to get into, because I think this is uh, another area where we kind of move from child to adult and we just, we start casting away the things that we did, you know, was, there was that quote, uh, when I was a child, I played as a child and, you know, play, uh, you know, as adults, we, you know, okay. I, I play tennis or, you know, I, I maybe yeah. play basketball, but as like, you got in the book, I started thinking, cause you said, this is like those sports that we play they're, they're, they're usually unilateral or they're, they're front and back, or there's some aspect to them where it's repetitive movement that we're doing. And while it's movement, which is great, I'm never going to poo-poo movement at all. It's, it's not really building us to be a better human. Can you talk about how we should play, how, how, how play would be if we, if we got out of our zoo.
2: Yeah, it's very specialised, the way that we observe those sports, right? They're very specialist. And underneath it all, we're all generalist movers. So um, again, in the book, I've put a study by Peter Gray. He wrote a fantastic book, Free to Learn. And we're an unschooling family, so it's around homeschooling and unschooling. But within it, again, three independent tribes, three different geographic locations. And he asked 10 leading anthropologists, "What what does childhood look like? in nature and firstly their response is they're the most well-adjusted well-rounded individuals they've ever met you know which we for our colonial minds like savages or whatever comes to the most well-rounded well-adjusted and that's you know not from a lens of cultural appropriation it's cultural appreciation it's like wow okay what's different you know and children are playing from infancy through to their teenage years and they are left to play without adult intervention without the adult supervision right so it's from infancy through to teenage years so all different ages playing and mixing together and they play at being everything so they've played at being the plants the rocks the animals yeah they've played at being the adults foraging hunting tracking fire building shelter building it's all in there so that the idea is that they they walk into adulthood in still what would be a playful state of mind. Um, And in adulthood, we could then question, well, are those tribes that we're talking about operating with a playful state of mind? And when asking Bruce Parry, who I interview, and he's again mentioned in the book, and from what's said is that this Penan tribe that he spent some time with in the Benjeli tribes, is that these tribes are moving through a landscape in this meditative state, you know, in a real parasympathetic state, what we call like flow states, they're in it. And flow state, I refer to as just being play state, it's just an extension of that. And then that, that ability to move your physicality in that environment, because if you're playing at being everything, you are everything. You'll be the, the animals in that environment, right? We have this amazing ability to impersonate any animal, right? Yet we have difficulty even moving our own with our own locomotive patterns and there is this understanding well what how does it compare through childhood to where what it would look like in nature and so we go again we enter a school system where we're very playful and we have play as the as the background within that where we're moving around on a playground a playground and we're expressing but it's still supervised by adults and there's now fear involved with that that children might fall off something or hurt something so we then start to worry about perhaps being sued so then we change even how high kids can climb and practice climbing or jumping or balancing and these are the fundamentals like balance climbing jumping lifting throwing defending running swimming right there are Our generalist movements, and even the imagine the amazing skills of foraging where you're down on the ground and low gate walking and grabbing things or have to perhaps crawl um, under something or over something or balance up in something or climb something. Um, That's a generalist mover, and and kids have that. If you actually let your kids just thrive in an environment, you'll be amazed at their capacity to move. Um, But yet we go into a classroom environment where that's stripped back and we're told to sit. We're getting into a PE, physical education, that's very specialist. And the, and the specialist lens means that it doesn't often suit every child. We also have the age, massive age differences. So the eldest in the year versus the youngest in the year, who's going to be picked, who's going to be strongest, and who's going to come away feeling inadequate? The youngest kids. The bigger kids are much stronger. They're taller. They're picked by whoever's in charge of that class. Um Then we have things like footwear again, like the basketball studies, like basketball footwear. Think of the forces that are involved in basketball. It's very playful basketball. It's a really great practice. It would become even greater if we looked at foot function because those basketball boots we're talking about, again, incredibly narrow in the toe box. The performance and behavior of the feet is compromised. That means the knee has to be the lower back. So if we then brought in that um, Professor Chris Dort study, and said, well, what if we didn't put compromising footwear on those children to begin with, and they maintain 60% of that foot strength and their balance, what potential would be there? Or we could say, what potential has been lost by wearing compromising footwear over time, and then putting specialist sports through these young bodies that are, again, as you've suggests right and i it's in the book it's this understanding that they're very linear those practices like pushing pulling one plane whereas actually when you look at play it's multi-direction and there's something else phenomenal that i observe through it and observing my kids is through that tribal experience of the kids are being everything it means that you can step outside your experience so even if you get stuck like we get stuck right people get stuck in depression or could be mental health for instance but if you don't lose your playful state of mind you can imagine yourself in a different position you can play out being something else so whereas in nature it might be i don't know what it, what whatever we're playing out in the in in a natural experience versus what we might be playing out in the human zoo might be harry potter um dobby or all these characters you know at least there's an opportunity to imagine yourself outside of that. So there's other things that uh, empathy, compassion, that can be delivered through that. I had um, a big workshop. It was with a yoga community, and uh, it's called Yoga Connects. And I was asked to take a class, and at the festival, and there was a large number of yogis came in. And I said, firstly, we're going to just roll your mats up, put them away, take your footwear off, and we will just just come into the space and we walk around the space and meander around the space. And I said, well, I'm not going to teach yoga. I'm not a Yogi, but I'm going to teach you something about connection and it's going to come through play. And all of a sudden I had these Yogi's in the room, brushing shoulders and then bouncing off one another, next body, body part, next body part, then mirroring one other's movements, then dancing head to head, looking into one another's eyes and then mimicking each other as if they're working in a mirror. And suddenly, what can become, even in yoga, which is these same planes on one mat performing the same movements over and over religiously, suddenly the expression changed, right? This amazing vocabulary of movement started to unravel in a very short window of time because we enter, we can, it's like play hydration, we call it. It's like you can suddenly start to reconnect to something we've become quite divorced from.
0: Tony, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well?
2: So that trifecta for me is breath work, um, looking at different modality, modalities of breath that help me change my my state, my state of mind, my being, my very being. And that might be from nasal breathing for temp, to tempos of breath. Um, simple practice on the hour, every hour could be simply four seconds up through the nose, six seconds out. I call it a rebooting breath. So that the day doesn't get away or the experience doesn't get away with me. I can stay in check and I can keep bringing it back to the breath. It's incredibly powerful. It drops us into a more restful state and just enables us to stay more in presence and be present in the moment. Um, the other one, of course, is nature immersion. The study suggests just 20 minutes in a, in a, in, a, in a natural setting. It could even be the park really but the more the more natural or more biodiverse the better the emotional state would be i would suggest um just 20 minutes is enough to lower heart rate blood pressure and the more diverse like forest you start to get things like phytoncides which are the compounds that plants like terpenes are like, almost like aromatherapy that's given off by plants and they're antifungal and antibacterial and when we inhale that our body starts to produce natural killer cells, which help then fight things like viruses and even tumors, right? So we have lowering heart rate, blood pressure, and an amazing kind of ability to improve our immune system just by being in nature. So that's breath work, I would say, nature immersion, and then movement, just finding those opportunities, become more of an opportunist, um, go back into that playful state of mind of how you might move. Get out of the chair, get onto the ground, start moving around. Think of that as a mobility practice. If you work from home, you have an amazing opportunity to move more within that environment. You know, just we're so conditioned to think we have to sit and do the work. And that might also mean on the commute, can I run down the stairs instead of getting the lift or the escalator? Can I balance on curbstones or something? You know, just think of that. And along with nature immersion, we could say that nature immersion also involves cold immersion, like. Cold water therapy and getting into cold water. And that also has an ability to change, completely change our perception, alter our state of mind. In in two minutes, you're done. You know, and you can literally maybe not be like the person getting in the water, but you'll be in love with the person getting out. You know, it can it can really change things in a very short window of time. So they're my three really. I call it Tony's trifecta. It's Tony's trifecta. And a breathwork, nature immersion. You <laughs> love know, that, that. Nature love immersion that. <laughs> and natural movement.
0: All right. Well, Tony, if someone wanted to uh, get in touch with you or learn more about the book, Be More Human, where would you like for them to go?
2: Um, You can hit my website, which is www.tonyriddle.com. I'm also known on Instagram as at the natural lifestylist. And there's lots on there. So in the link, the bio there, you'll be able to find links to my book up-and-coming workshops upcoming retreats and experiences i have a big retreat going in in august um, end of august which um, is a rewilding retreat so it's on an incredible estate so it's an opportunity to not just rewild movement but also be involved in the landscape there and have that experience so that tony trifecta is in full effect there it's a great place space for that and also have a lookout for the hundred human experience which is um it's a weekend weekend events that i hold with 100 people we have 100 people come and there's breath work movement cold immersion ice baths um ecstatic dance cacao ceremonies it's like a really um, just an incredible experience so all of that can be found really on my either on the website or on my instagram account they're good places to head really there's a number of tutorials there Um, and if you're interested in the barefoot stuff there's a documentary we just won best documentary for at the british independent film festival it's called one man two feet three peaks and that's up on youtube um there's some great stuff there that's a record that i broke um running the three biggest peaks the highest peaks in the uk and normally the idea is you drive between them i decided to run the whole distance and i covered the mountains barefoot as well so it was breaking a men's running record, but also breaking it being barefoot, which is quite something.
0: It is. It is. Thank you, Tony. Uh, I'll make sure to have those links on uh, the show notes for this episode. So, Tony, thank you so much for being a part of 40 Plus Fitness. Welcome back, grass.
1: Hey, Alan. You know, that was a really interesting interview, and I really like the term rewilding. Yeah, I'm not so sure I'm a big fan of his wild human or zoo
0: human. I, I actually think, but... I think that's, I actually think, I like that. I actually Do think you? that is, well, because, <laughs> you know, we, we don't want our kids to get dirty. You know, they stick their hands in the dirt and we want to wipe it off. Um, yeah. We don't want to get dirty. Uh, yeah. A lot of us don't. Uh, we, we want clean, you know, we want sanitary. We're concerned about all this stuff, uh, you know, hand sanitizer, mm-hmm. uh, avoiding everything, uh, concrete, this, uh, rubber, that, uh, gloves, masks, all of it. We mm-hmm. do so much to separate ourselves from our environment. Mm-hmm. Sunglasses, you know, just even something as simple as sunglasses is, is, separating you from the sun. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I get it. You know, if you're walking on Pensacola beach, it's so bright white with the sun, (laughs) Yes, you're going to be blind. You're going to be blind. blind. You're going to be blind for (laughs) 20 minutes. Um, Mm -hmm. until your eyes adjust, I get it. But, uh, we do so much to separate ourselves from our environment and Mm -hmm. that's frankly unnatural.
1: Well, that's why I like the term we rewilding so that we do take a, an extra step into nature, which I love, you know, I'm always outside running on the trails and checking out what is all out there. But um, but you're, but the other part of the conversation was, you know, you've said this in the past too. We look at our ancestors, you know, hunter gatherers, they were active. They weren't la- lounging on sofas and lazy boys like we are today. But also you brought in the child aspect of it. You know, looking at what our children are doing, they're just running around playing without even thinking about whether they're watching, just saying they're productive or not. Yeah, (laughs) They're just out there enjoying what they're
0: doing. Right. And, you know, the whole time we were on the conversation, Tony was basically sitting on the floor. He had a lower desk. And so I could tell, you know, he was sitting on the floor, he was kneeling, he would move his leg. He would shift side to side as he was talking. You can't, you can't tell that's happening when you're listening to it, but the whole time he was sitting on the floor. And Mm -hmm. as a result, you know, of our interview, which I think ran almost an hour, uh, he's moving, he was moving. And, um, you know, that's positive movement. Um, but all that said, um, we don't get down enough. And we, we, you know, and we don't get up and we don't get down. We're in chairs, Mm -hmm. we're in couches. Mm -hmm. We spend our office hours in a desk. Um, We might be lucky enough to have an adjustable desk or something like that, where we can at least stand part of the day and that's better. You know, that's better and Mm -hmm. betters, betters good. Uh, It doesn't have to be perfect.
1: Yeah. But it was interesting I didn't even think about having a seat, like a seating on sitting on the floor type desk, <laughs> like yeah. you guys, like you just said he was doing in his interview. You know, we don't get down on the floor very often unless we drop something and have to kneel down to find it.
0: <laughs> and and, you know, grunts, and, it's important and, and grunt and grunt and grunt, and then and oh, then yeah. the worst of like you know you you have the people that that joke about. Well, I don't get on the floor anymore unless I have a plan on how to get up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, it's and, true
0: and we can joke about it but the, mm-hmm. the reality is that's that's functional movement and mm-hmm. let's say you wanted to go camping well what are you doing you're squatting you're getting down you're starting a fire because you can't start mm-hmm. a fire standing up uh you're right. getting in and out of your tent which unless mm-hmm. you are kind of really doing something special you don't walk into your tent you get no. on your hands and knees and you <laughs> hands crawl and
1: knees, yeah.
0: uh if you're sleeping Climbing you're you're, out, you're not yeah. sleeping on a pillow top bed you now have at best a blow up, uh, but a lot of times not. Mm-hmm. Uh the best you could do is make sure you don't have a rock or a root under your lower back. You know, we find a mm-hmm. soft spot to right spot to lay. And then you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. You're crawling back out of the tent and uh yeah. walking around. <laughs> yeah. And so you know it's just these these things that we say, okay, I I would love to be able to do this. I'd love to be able to do that. I want to be able to carry my own kayak. I want to be able to go camping and enjoy myself there's movement patterns mm-hmm. that you're going to be doing that you mm-hmm. should make a part of your regular life. So when you're camping, this is not an unusual thing. This is a part right. of your lifestyle. It's the way you intended to live mm-hmm. when you go camping, when you do these other things. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, if you're on the floor and you're sitting for an extended period of time doing something, it could be, be watching a television show, you know, mm-hmm. you're sitting there and your watch is not going to tell you, oh, you moved <laughs> this many squirms in that many ways, mm-hmm. and your watch isn't going to do that. You, there's no metric for it other than you notice that it just gets more natural. It feels better. You know, there's not these grunts and groans or pains or aches. You're you're building mobility from the very fact that you're on the floor and your body is forcing you to squirm around because you can't just sit. You're going to want to move, you know, your leg to the side. You're going to want to shift the other leg. You're going to go move from one butt cheek to the other butt cheek. And then Mm -hmm. maybe you want to go ahead and get up into a kneeling position. And while you're in the kneeling position, you know, instead of both knees on the ground, you want one knee on the ground. And then, you know, you're just moving around through these, these ranges of motion. And that's one of the things he has in the book is he literally has those laid out of, okay, this is a set, this is a set, this is a set. And so you can say, I'm going to spend some time in a kneeling position. I'm going to spend some time in a sitting position. I'm going to spend some time in a squatting position, because Mm -hmm. if you get your mobility right, the squat, as he mentioned, Mm -hmm. is a rest position. I know that sounds really weird, uh, but without having your butt sitting on something other than maybe your heels, Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, that should be a resting position, but we've kind of beat that out of ourselves with decades of sitting. sitting uh, we're not, yeah. we're not able to do that. And you can look at videos and see if you've ever been to, uh, particularly Asia, uh, but across mostly across Asia and somewhat in Africa, I've seen this where literally, yeah, they squat down almost mm-hmm. butt to grass and, um, they're. That's a resting position. They're just sitting there now. They're also most of the time when I see them doing that, they're smoking. Um, oh gosh! <laughs> but <laughs> which we'll talk oh, about geez. in a few weeks with Doctor Ramirez. But you know, that's the whole point is though. That's their resting position. So instead of just standing around mm-hmm. or sitting in a chair, they just plop down and they're in a very comfortable rest position because the joints are now all the all the pressure's off the muscles and the joints. You're just in a natural lay there sit there position. Mm-hmm. Um, so sure. yeah, there's a lot of little things we can do. And this book has some really good guidelines uh, of how you can get started rewilding yourself. Uh, but to I me, it's that. really just about finding function. Uh, it's about mm-hmm. getting back to what you know should be your natural approach.
1: That sounds great. Yeah. Interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, uh, it was, I I was pleasantly surprised uh, with the book and with Tony. Because knowing some of his friends, I was expecting a a totally different book Mm -hmm. from the be more human aspect of that. But no, it was a great book. And if you're concerned about mobility, flexibility, strength, all those functional fitness things we talk about right now, this is one of the best books you can buy to become more functionally fit. That sounds great. All right. Well, Rachel, I'll talk to you next week. Great. Thanks. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. Thanks. Next time on the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we're going to learn about our lymphatic system by meeting with Dr. Loretta Friedman and discussing her book, Lymph Link. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.